You know who is a talented guy? That Leonardo da Vinci. I don't know if you heard about this guy. All right. Anybody? No? I'm the only one that knows about this guy? All right. So, just kidding. He was this, I mean, what is that, Renaissance, I guess? Is that what that's classified? Yeah. Jack of all trades, right? He painted, you know, that stuck-up model. It's like, smile or don't. Come on, man, you know? Uh, he's drawing helicopters. Uh, you know, he drew this guy, I think, you know? The anatomy guy. He's a pretty smart dude. And then all on, by the way, an absolutely crazy, um, like, sleep schedule. Have you ever seen, like, Da Vinci's, like, what was it? He slept, like, a couple hours in a row, and then, you know. Anyway, there's a YouTube video. A guy tries to do it for a week and almost kills him, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, the cool part with Da Vinci, though, is he was a genius with a whole bunch of different disciplines, right? Uh, it's pretty cool. I'm the same way, but without the genius part, right? So I really, and it drives Melissa nuts, right? I get into a hobby for like a month, and then uh, I quit when it gets a little bit hard, and I move on to something else, you know? Um, so it turns out, I figured this out, Melissa, this is how it works. My hobby is collecting hobbies. See that? That's my hobby, right? Well, no, because like when I, I was like this too when I was in high school, so we're going to have a, a John High School slideshow. These are all the pictures I could come up with because uh, all the pictures of me from high school burned down in the fire, you know, my yearbook and everything. Um, but, <clears throat> okay, so I did sports. I had a really good picture at one point of me throwing a baseball that's burned in the fire. Um, I was that kid that was just like, I'm going to try everything and see what I like, you know. Um, I did art for a while. I got really into, like, uh, painting and stuff. Um, I think the only person that will appreciate this is Steven. That was my painting. It got a 95, needs more paint, right? Uh, let's see, what else did I do? I was in student council. Uh, I was the president just because I wanted to be in charge, you know, and then I turned out it, that's not being in charge, it's just doing all the work. Uh, so I got that backwards, right? Um, I was in bands. That's me with my awesome hair, I believe. My slides don't work, so I have to turn around to look at the slides. My Hurley sweatshirt, my skateboarding stuff, and I started the cargo pants fad and the spiky hair, so. Um, I did the newspaper. By the way, I got kicked out of the newspaper because I used to write this, like, you, know, you remember that newspaper, like, fake newspaper, the Weekly World News? You know, or like, kind of like, or sort of like The Onion, right? Like, joke articles. Well, I wrote a joke article about how the principal was embezzling money, and then all the parents thought it was real. And then it started a whole thing, and I got, almost got kicked out of school, and I had to apologize in front of an assembly. It was a whole thing, right? Uh, so it was, you know that subreddit, Ate the Onion, where people believe onion articles? <laughs> That's what happened, <laughs> and it almost got me kicked out of high school. Um, I was in drama. I did, uh, like, uh, AV kind of stuff. At one point, we got really into making movies, like, but that was kind of harder before digital. Like, in high school was when iMovie came out for me. So... We were like, oh, we're going to make movies. And then, so we wrote this whole movie that was kind of like Star Wars, and it was really bad, you know. But there was one part where there was a stunt, right? So this is the only picture of me I've ever liked. You ready for this? I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of this picture, you know. I mean, it's literally, I hate every picture of me. Well, there's actually two pictures of me I like. That's the other one there. Yeah, buddy, I really did that. Okay, so this has nothing to do with the sermon. Can I just tell? Okay, so this is 15-year-olds, right? Um, so one time I hit the mattresses, but I hit them like right here. You know, I jumped too far. And the whole thing compressed. 
and I smacked my face on the ground, and then it uncompressed, and it shot me up, and I did a front flip, and we had these like sprinklers that were built into the lawn, and I landed on it, and it like cut my back open, and I remember I probably needed stitches, but we just super glued it because I didn't want to get in trouble, you know, and then, um, so then I don't remember this at all, but then when I look at this picture, if you look at the picture, in front of the thing is a pillow, so our 15-year-old brain solution was instead of let's not jump off the roof, you know, was let's just put a pillow on the, on the sprinkler just in case that happens again. Anyway, that's Ben. Yeah. My little, yeah, my little brother. He was too smart slash chicken to jump off the roof and tall. I mean, the mattresses were like, you know, I'm 5'9". So, I mean, it was like I had an inch on each side. I had to hit it perfectly. Um, let's see, what else did I do in high school? I think, uh, yeah, there we go. That's all the pictures of me. Um, I ran a lunch program for a while in like a business elective where I did go buy all this stuff for lunch and run the whole kitchen program. And anyway, point being, um, oh, sidebar too, just a lot of those random little hobbies turned out to be pretty good for church planting. Guitar. At my one point, I was like, you know what? I'm going to learn how to play drums and guitar and stuff. Uh, graphic design and web design stuff. I don't know, just a lot of these little things you have to, the sound, I was going to be a sound guy for a while, turned out to be good. But the point is, I collect hobbies, right? Like, I, it's like, I get really into something, and I think, you know what, my whole life now, it's going to be about this one thing for the rest of my life, and it's like a week, you know, and then I get really into something else. Um, the, the point of the illustration is, <clears throat> I think a lot of evangelical Christians, we treat faith sometimes the way I treat hobbies, is I'm going to get really into this for like six weeks. And then I'm going to still kind of tell people I do it, right? But I'm not going to like practice. I mean, that was me with guitar for, I don't know, how old am I? So like 15 years probably. I was, a real, I was really a drummer. I knew like four chords on guitar and I would tell people I can play guitar, but I didn't really, you know, I mean, I, was, I, I didn't practice. It got hard. Um, today's text, Jesus, I think, is going to challenge like specifically with us, that mindset of this is going to be something either I'm really into for a while or I'm going to kind of compartmentalize my life, right? So I have my church life over here. I have my, my work life, my family life, and I'm not going to let those things touch each other, right? I'm not, I'm not going to let there be some sort of an overlap. All right, so verse, we're going to read just a little bit here, verse 25. Uh, now crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, oh, sorry, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them. So we haven't super talked about this, but have you ever noticed Luke keeps pointing out that there's these huge crowds following Jesus? Like oh, almost every like text starts with, and he was on his way to Jerusalem or, and a great crowd was with him. And most of the time we've just sort of been glossing over this. But uh, it's important maybe here to stop and ask why you know, any big leader, why does a leader have a following, right? Can I tell you one I got way wrong? 2016, Trump's running for president. And at the beginning of the primaries, if you remember, um, uh, he wasn't winning, right? I don't remember who was winning. Was it Ted Cruz or somebody? I don't know. There was a handful of people. Marco Rubio was in the running for, to be the Republican guy. Anyway, so Trump was just kind of the you know, the, the candidate that nobody really took very seriously. And then he won maybe a primary or two. And I thought, huh, that's weird, right? But me living in San Francisco, I had no idea why, like, a bunch of people followed Trump. I'm one of the city people that was completely shocked when he actually won the election. 
you know, did you guys see the, um, the, the week after he won, there was a really funny uh, SNL skit with Dave Chappelle where it's a bunch of people that live in New York sitting around over time suddenly realizing he might win. Anyway, it's a pretty funny skit. But, I mean, that was kind of my mindset was like, you know, every time he won a primary, I was like, yeah, okay, he won that one, but it's not going to keep me. There's no way the guy from Celebrity Apprentice is going to become the president of the United States. I didn't know a lot about him, you know. But he's going to become the president of the United States. I just didn't understand the following, like, at all, because I'm not from the middle of the country. Um, so with Jesus, right, it's the same kind of thing, right? He has this huge following. We should stop and ask why. So I came up with some reasons. Why would people in this day and age, in the first century, why would they try to follow Jesus? Why would they be at one of these big crowd events, you know? First, what's the most obvious one, right, is to be healed. We see this all the time. Jesus is healing large crowds full of people. And if you found out, if you lived in the first century where the doctors were like, I don't know, put some leeches on them, you know? <laughs> doctors were not that great. And some guy all of a sudden was healing stuff and you had some sort of a chronic illness, of course you would go. The second reason is connected is to see somebody be healed, right? Wouldn't you want to watch that? If you weren't sick, but you heard some guy was out there healing lepers and blind people, you'd think, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe I want to go, you know, same reason you slow down on the freeway when you see an accident. You just want to see what's going on, right? Rubbernecking. Um, the third one is curiosity, right? Maybe people just kind of heard what was going on. Um, you know, he's healing people, doing all this stuff. I don't know. Let's go check it out, you know? There's no TV back then. <laughs> what else are you going to do all day? Let's go see this guy. Um, the, the fourth reason I put was uh, there were a lot of people in this crowd that were there not for good reasons, right? To trap him. We read about some of those people before. Was it last week where, you know, they were watching Jesus or a couple weeks ago? They were watching Jesus, remember? Um, the fifth reason, his teaching was very popular because it had authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it says, you know, that Jesus spoke he didn't speak like everybody else, right? He was speaking like, the, everybody else would go, oh, the scribes tell you, blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus would say, but I tell you. You know, that, that's an impressive thing, right? To speak like you actually know what you're talking about. Um, the next one, uh, his teaching was freeing, not burdensome. So all the teaching in this time, day and age was like just throwing burdens on people's backs, you know? And Jesus comes along, and all of a sudden, his teaching is you're saved by grace and all this stuff. And everybody's, whoa, this is a lot better, you know? This is a lot lighter. Uh, let's see, what else did I put? He spent time with outcasts and those at the bottom, right? So if you wanted to be religious and you wanted to follow God, but you were sort of at the bottom of society, that was kind of a bummer for you in this day and age, because everywhere you went, people were like, oh, God's judging you for your sin, you know? And then Jesus comes along and was like, hey, you want to go get dinner? You're like, with me? You're like the famous rabbi. Why would you want to go get dinner with me? Everybody hates me, right? This is, a lot of people were brought in that way. Uh, next, I put in a world of like food scarcity, that feeding of the 5,000 story spread, right? This dude can just make food show up out of nowhere. I'm kind of hungry. You want to go get something to eat? You know, that's part of the reason people are there. Um, and then let's see. Oh, the last one is there's like the messianic expectations of the Jewish people. A lot of people think he might be the Messiah. Most of those people think what that means is he's going to be the one that's going to become the king, raise up an army, and kick out the Romans. And these Romans are oppressive and brutal, and we can't stand them. And uh, maybe this is going to be the guy. Right? So as you look at this list that I just wrote, there are probably more reasons, but I mean, that's like nine or ten or whatever. Uh, as you look at that list, though, you can imagine 
People are there for all kinds of reasons, good reasons, bad reasons, medium reasons. So this crowd has been filled with people. Um, so what Jesus does is he stops. I bet he looks at the crowd or somebody asked him a question or something. We don't have like the context of what sparked this exactly. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to teach these guys what it means to really be a disciple because a lot of these folks are not here for the right reasons. And so that's what he does. So he keeps going. Verse 26. Here we go. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right, this is funny because we just did, um, Erica just led us through the New City Catechism. Honor your father and mother, right? <laughs> and then that was, I didn't plan that at all. That just accidentally happened and I didn't think about that until right now. And then we jump up to the book of Luke. If anybody doesn't hate his own father or mother. All right. So we had to talk about, just for a sec, we've talked about this before, but let me do this again. Biblical lit, um, literalism, right? Taking the Bible literally. Um, what that means is we take the Bible the way that it was intended with the first audience, okay? There's biblical, like, over-literalism, which is what a lot of people think taking the Bible literally means, where everything in the Bible has to be literal. The problem with that is uh, you know, a lot of things in the Bible were figures of speech and things you're not supposed to take literally. Or there's even sections in the Bible, like in the Old Testament, uh, what is it, the Amalekites, you know, the people of Israel. We killed all of the Amalekites, every last one of them. Our God wins. And you fast forward two chapters. Ah, we're fighting the Amalekites. You know, and we're like, wait, wait, they just said they killed them all. So the, the biblical over-literalist people come up with all this tangled web of trying to figure out how this is possible. Well, maybe that happened before. I mean, also, it's just they're bragging they just won this battle, and they're just being, you know, ah, we killed them all. You know what I mean? Like, so we, we can't take the Bible over literally. And um, another place uh, where this happens a lot, we've talked about this before too, is the book of Revelation, where people, okay, the locusts are helicopters and the, you know, and I'm like, no, these are symbols of things. So let me say here, this is one of those places where I think people can get tripped up. Uh, Jesus is not being literal here. Um, you know, some, someday I hope for our girls to grow up godly women who put faith in Jesus. If that happens, I don't expect them to come up to me. I like Jesus, and now I hate you. <laughs> you know, you suck, Dad. How dare you? You know, uh, that, that's going to happen when they say, hey, can I take the car today? And I'm like, no. And then they're going to go, I hate you, Dad. You know, I'm saving it for that. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> so what Jesus means here, he's exaggerating. It's pretty simple. He's exaggerating for effect, right? Um, hyperbolic teaching like this was very common in the ancient world, right? I'm, it's, it's a, this is an I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse situation. My friend Bob Sacramento eats horse all the time. That's from Seinfeld. has nothing to do with anything. Uh, this is what's going on here. Now, remember, the, the context is key here, too. This is a communal culture, clan culture, family. They're, they're not individualistic like we are. And so the worldview paradigm that everybody in this culture was working with went like this. My family is ultimate. My clan is ultimate. Those things, like the clan needs, are more important than my own needs. And into that world, Jesus teaches, when you're my disciples, you have to hate your own family. What he's saying is when you become my disciples, the paradigm that you are looking at the world through has to shift, right? So he's specifically challenging the way that they see the world. Now, your identity doesn't come from your clan. Your identity comes from your new clan, 
right, from the, being part of the people of God, being part of the family of God. So what's ultimate in your life now, being a disciple, has to shift. Our context is different. We live with a completely different worldview paradigm, don't we? We've talked a lot about sort of at the root of what we believe is existentialism, that idea that in American culture, Western culture really, you're built, you're born with a blank slate, and any meaning you put into your life, you have to put it there. And so the worst thing that you can do is not be, you've heard this phrase a million times, be true to yourself, right? And so the idea is I'm kind of on an island creating my own meaning, and I can't let all of these other people tell me what to do, right? Uh, I have to do whatever, no matter who I hurt or how bad it goes or whatever, as long as I'm being my truest self, right? I think Jesus would take a very different approach in our context. I don't think he would show up and he would say, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your family. I think he would show up and he would say, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate yourself because we worship ourselves. That's our whole thing. He, says, he would say, you have to hate your ambition. You have to hate your hopes and dreams, your individualism. You have to hate your freedom. Because Wait, freedom? No, that's like, you know, I have a Bible with an American flag on it. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Yeah, I've seen those, like the Patriot Bible, I think it's called. Really? I don't know about that, guys. Um, but that's what Jesus would specifically challenge, I think, right? Because from the time we were young, you know, what's that thing about, like, if you want to, uh, what is it, ask, you know, what's water? You don't ask a fish or is that something like that, right? Because they don't even know what, it's so around them, they don't even know what water is, right? Uh, that's kind of the worldview, right? I mean, we're thinking so we can figure this out, but we're thinking beings, but the worldview we grew up in that a lot of times we don't even see how much it seeps into our lives is this like Western individualistic, you have to create your own meaning, be your truest self, you have to follow your dreams, right, sort of stuff. The American dream, I guess, you know, um, you grew up with that probably, assuming that's just the way the world works. And uh, being a disciple of Jesus, though, challenges that. It's why we call him Lord, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, Lord God. All the, the word Lord means you're the one in charge and I'm not the one in charge. That specifically challenges the idea that you're the center of everything and you're the one that's in charge of your life, this Western idea. Um, and so, um, uh, kind of the, the wrong way that church people, I think, a lot of times go about this is we try to make God in our own image, Right? We, try to, we try to twist what Jesus says and the things that he does so that he fits the idea that we've created on our blank slate. Jesus has to fit onto the, what we've decided the world looks like. And it's a terrible way to go about this. And this is one of the reasons I chose Luke as the first book to read, right? Because we've said this before, but like what we're doing here is we're trying to look at Jesus, look at what he calls us to do, and look at who he tells us he is, and say, that's what we're going with, right? Not these preconceived notions about Jesus that we have before. And so um, the temptation is to just take the parts of Jesus we like and then put the rest over here, right? He gets no say in my sexuality. He gets no say in my work life. He gets no say in my life planning, my marriage, my money, my view of sin, all of this stuff. He gets to be over there, but in the part where he tells me to be nice to my neighbors, okay, I'll take that and I'll put it here. Or the part, you know, and we separate and that's not discipleship, right? Jesus doesn't mince words here. He says there are two kinds of disciples. Disciples who have had this entire paradigm-shifting worldview relationship with Jesus and non-disciples. Those are the two options. There's no middle ground. There's no, uh, oh, I'm sort of a disciple, 
You know, there's no my hobbies. I'm going to do this for a little while, and then I'm going to move on to something better when I get bored. Right? He's like, that's not how it works. And so someone in this crowd listening to Jesus teach about how tough it is to be a disciple might be thinking, well, that, that's hard. I'm not sure if I really want to be a disciple. You would think if somebody was trying to get disciples like Jesus, what you would do is he would get into something, you know, he would soften it a little bit, right? Just to kind of appeal to people. Jesus does the, literally the exact opposite of that. Look at what he says here, uh, verse 27. That clip. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A criminal carrying a cross was a very common sight in the Roman world. Um, everybody knew what Jesus meant when he said this, right? Is unless you're uh, following me means that you're so devoted um, that you are going to be willing to give up your very life if I ask you to do it, even in a brutal way. Now, this should sound familiar to all of us, right? Because we already read this, didn't we? Like, um, uh, let me just read this here. It says, and he said to all, if anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste uh, death until they see the kingdom of God. So this is something we read in Luke 9. We've already talked about this a bunch. And we talked about, if you remember, how misused in our culture the idea of carrying a cross is. This has become a little phrase like, oh no, there's traffic to get to the bridge from my house. And this is just my cross to bear. You know, <laughs> come on, man, it's traffic, right? Uh, this is kind of what we've done. And we talked about how the 12 disciples, the apostles who heard this, I guess not Judas, we'll put him over here, but uh, Jesus' followers, like a whole bunch of them were crucified and tortured to death in various ways, all except for John, who was tortured and they tried to kill him, but he didn't die according to church tradition. We don't, you know. Um, then we talked about the main idea, right, is that following Jesus, what it means is total devotion, even if that means taking up a cross and following him to the cross. So, so far with Jesus' teaching on discipleship, we have following me means shifting your entire worldview paradigm. Following, you might, following Jesus might cost you everything, even your own life. I bet a whole bunch of people that were there to rubberneck and watch healing or were there for some other reason, you know, thinking about Jesus. Man, maybe I'll check out this Jesus guy. A bunch of them was like, oh, I left the stove on, right? Because when a guy gets up and tells you, hey, following me might mean you're going to get crucified. In a world where people were getting crucified all the time, that was like a real thing that might happen to you. And so people had to decide, do I want to maybe someday get crucified and follow this guy, or do I want to go home and do something else? And I think a lot of people did. I bet a lot of people got up, you know, and just sort of, yeah, oh, he's talking. I'm just going to inch out of church. You know, I'm going to think the pastor doesn't see me when I walk out the back or whatever, right? Uh, but this is kind of the whole point of Jesus' teaching. Um, he wants people to see the reality of what it means to follow him. So to do that then, with the people who have stayed up to this point, he tells a parable. Verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So he doesn't say what kind of tower. This is one of those things, I tell you guys a lot about these because it cracks me up. How much 
the commentators and people argue about stuff that doesn't matter at all. And this is one of those things. Well, it was a military tower. And no, it was a tower for barns and like for holding, does it matter what kind of tower? A building, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The point is he's building something and it's going to be expensive. And so before anybody starts a large project like this, you need to count the cost, have a plan, figure it out, make sure you can do it. Um, my, one of my, uh, okay, this is not really a hobby. This is just how I kill time, but it's sort of a hobby while I sit and watch Roseanne with Melissa. We watch a lot of Roseanne. Um, is I get out my iPad and I go on Zillow and I search in different cities for the most expensive houses and then I do the 3D tours of them and I go, why would you put a column in the middle of whatever? <laughs> you know, like I know anything about architecture or I'll have ever have enough money to buy a house, you know? Um, <laughs> and so there's a house two blocks from me. I think it's like 15 or $16 million, okay? And this house was on, it's like the middle of the block and it's a really cool house as a driveway that goes in the middle of Knob Hill, there's this like compound that nobody knows about. Okay, a couple years ago, it was for sale. And then all of a sudden, it's for sale again. Now, I have absolutely no idea why it's for sale. You know, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. There, there could be a million reasons. One reason I was thinking of, though, is I bet what happened is somebody bought it and then didn't quite figure out the budget for how to pay the property taxes on a $15 million house in San Francisco. I don't know what that would be, a couple hundred grand a year. You know, like somebody had $20 million. Oh, I'm going to spend 15 of it on a house, you know. That could be one option, right? Stuff like that happens a lot. That's the idea that Jesus is talking about here. Before you go buy the $15 million house with the Japanese gardens and in the middle of Knob Hill, maybe scroll down in Zillow where it tells you how much the property taxes are before you buy the house. How much is the, the insurance and the mortgage? and the, You, know, you want to figure that out. That's what he says, verse 29. Others, uh, otherwise, sorry, why, uh, when he has laid a foundation, he's not, not able to finish. All who see, uh, see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So uh, this guy is going to get mocked. Um, which, again, in our culture, just, oh, they made fun of him. But in this culture, it was him being mocked bring, was bringing shame to his entire clan. Right? This has widespread effects that this guy didn't figure out, oh, it actually cost this much to build a tower. So he gets part of the way through it, like so many developments all over right before. Do you guys remember this? And you guys weren't all here, and well, some of you were. 2000, and when was that, like, bubble burst? Eight, something like that? When all of a sudden San Francisco was filled with half-filled skyscrapers and apartments and condos and everything just like stopped. And there's like whole neighborhoods out in like Antioch that are half, uh, you know, half put together, um, uh, what do they call like uh, suburb homes, you know, like little developments, right? This is what happened. People didn't, you know, they didn't count the cost. And in this culture, that was, a, you know, this is going to trickle down and it's going to bring shame to your whole family. And the point of the parable is Jesus is being honest about the cost which is a good thing. He's not lightening this up for the, the, the disciples. He's telling them, look, guys, this is what it's going to mean to follow me. Um, I'm, I'll tell you a story about this sort of happened to me. When I was in high school, uh, I was in a class, what was it, humanities. I didn't like my teacher at all. And <laughs> uh, so I didn't take the class very seriously. I didn't do any of the work. You know, I had like a, I had a pretty good like, I was a pretty smart student when I cared, but this class, I was just like, I don't care about this at all. Didn't do none of it. 
Anyway, I had a bad grade. I don't remember if it was like a D or a C or something, which is terrible. And he came to me and he was like, hey, if you, we need people to be in the play. Uh, you know, the spring play or whatever. He's like, we're doing Twelfth Night. It's a Shakespeare play. He's like, if you will help me out with the play for however many weeks that is, I'll bump you up to a B plus or an A or something in the humanities class. I was like, all right, fine. And what he said to me was, you'll have a small part and then I'll need you to do a bunch of like the tech stuff, like setting up the stage and that sort of stuff. And you'll have five or six lines. I said, cool. So he hands me this paper and the paper says, you're going to be in the play. I'd assign it. And if you back out, you fail humanities. And I was like, all right, that's fine. I'll do this. It's fine. So then the next day, he comes to me with the script. And he's like, you're Toby. And I was like, okay, cool. And I opened it up. Five lines is what this clown promised me. Five. This many. Opened it up. Boy, he talks a lot at the beginning there. So it's cool. I'm just going to have a couple lines in the first scene. Then I'm out the rest of the play. This is nice. Flip the page again. He's still talking. Uh, this one, he talks for two pages. Uh, 152 lines this guy has. And I just signed a paper that says, if I back out, I fail uh, humanities. So I went to the teacher and I argued. and He didn't, couldn't have cared less. He tricked me. He was a liar and a crook. And by the way, 152 lines. I wrote that in my notes. And then I was like, I've been saying 152 about this for a long time because I'm still upset about it. And I went back and checked. It's 152. That's how angry I am. I've completely accurately remembered how wrong this guy was. Okay, He was not honest with me. If he had said to me, hey, you want to be in the play? There's 152 lines. I would have told him to pound sand and I would have gone and done something else and taken my C in humanities. Maybe done one of the assignments. I don't know. Right? <clears throat> it, he's a crook. And if I ever see him, I'm going to knock him down a flight of stairs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I'm still mad about it. And I accidentally got hit with a sword during this play that I shouldn't have even been in, had to get stitches across my back. So thanks for nothing about being honest, right? Jesus is doing the opposite. Jesus comes up and he goes, hey, you're going to have 152 lines <laughs> and somebody's going to hit you with a sword. Do you want to be in my play? <laughs> right? This is, this is what he's doing. Okay, keep going. Uh, he, he, does another, he gives another parable with the same effect, right? Or what king uh, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So it's the same idea, but this time, instead of building a tower, it's going to war, right? Um, these, are, these twin parables were very common uh, in Jesus' teaching. But like, he'll do this again in the next chapter. Uh, there's actually three parables, the lost sheep, coin, and then the lost son, right? The prodigal son. Um, so maybe somebody in the first in the crowd heard the first parable, but you know they never had enough money to build anything, and so it didn't really hit them hard, right? It's like if somebody came up to me, and was like starts talking about real estate investment as a parable. And I'm like, okay, I don't know, right? But a lot of those poorer folks might have had a son die in a battle, right? Because poor people tended to be who went to the army. So this one might hit a little bit closer to home. Um, actually, I was writing this the week. Uh, of the invasion in um, Ukraine, right? And I was thinking about this. Boy, like, well, now it looks like Putin sure didn't count the cost as these sanctions are crippling the Russian economy and 
Um, I just saw this morning when I opened my phone, I was looking at Visa now is backing out of doing anything in Russia. Like, Russia is going to be terribly, it's not going to go well. But like, even if they win the war in Ukraine as a country, this is a big, you know, he didn't really count the cost. The other thing was, though, I was thinking about it, why aren't like these Western countries actually doing something? Right? We got drones, you know what I mean? Don't we? I've seen that a lot on the TV. Why aren't we doing something? And the reason is because our leaders look like they're counting the cost because there's a madman with his finger on a nuclear button. And so they're looking at it, and they're counting the cost. It's the same, like Jesus, would, hum, human nature hasn't changed at all since Jesus was talking about this, right? We get this, the idea of a war and counting the cost. Um, so far, we have in our list of things here that Jesus is teaching. Being a disciple changes your whole worldview, changes the paradigm you're looking at the world through. It might cost you your life, so you should count the cost, right? Like a builder or a king going off the war. Next, he says, it might cost you one more thing. Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, this is one of those hyperbolic statements. Jesus sort of exaggerating for effect. Are you allowed to own stuff as a disciple? Yeah, I mean, Jesus is, Peter had a jacket, you know what I mean? Like uh, one of those robes. I don't know what they wore back then, you know, probably some sandals. I mean, they had boats, right? Because after the crucifixion and you know, after the resurrection, remember they went back to fishing, so they still had their boats. So um, are you allowed to own stuff? Sure. Are you allowed to own stuff and have money in the same way that you did before being a disciple of Jesus? No, right? And we talked about, we just did a whole like two or three sermons on money and possession, so I'm not going to beat this to death. Um, but I think what Jesus is doing is he's being like a surgeon. He's getting to something he knows specifically is going to trip people up from being a disciple. And um, the idea is being a disciple, discipleship with Jesus, it's total, right? It's, it's all-encompassing. It means he's the Lord of all your bank accounts, your investment accounts. He's the Lord of all of it. And so, um, right, if you missed the one about money, it was in the middle of 12. Uh, I wrote down 12, 13, that section right after that. There's two sermons there about money and anxiety about money and that sort of stuff. And so Jesus is teaching this large crowd what real discipleship looks like and what it doesn't. And what he says is kind of a big deal and it's going to be really hard. Um, there's a guy who I've mentioned before. His name is Kyle Eidelman. I think I say it. And he wrote a book called Not a Fan. Um, and uh, it's a great book if you want to go read it. I've mentioned it before. But he, this passage, I think, is one of the big parts of his book. And what he says is there's a lot of people who try to be fans of Jesus but don't want to be disciples. And those are two different things. And, you know, he wrote a whole book flushing the idea out. Right? I'm a Giants fan, in case you didn't notice from every week when I wear a Giants hat in church. <laughs> but if, if Brandon Crawford, who's the greatest shortstop in the history of the world, came up to me and he said, I need you to change the way you view the whole world. I need you to let me tell you how to use your money. And I might ask you to die for me. I'd be like, uh, no. You're a great shortstop. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> right? But uh, that's, you're, you're crossing the line there. Um, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's challenging people. He's saying, I don't want you to be fans. He's like, I want disciples. And so last, he ends the section with a little comparison um, uh, of what disciples, why he wants disciples. Because this kind of life sticks out in the world, right? A fan of Jesus doesn't really stick out. You can just blend into the world, right? But a disciple doesn't. He says, salt, yeah, I did. salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall its saltiness be restored? Okay, here's the thing. Pure salt can't actually get less salty. Right? It's either salt or it's something else. Those are the options. There's not like diet salt in the world, right? That you can go out and find salt light or something. That's not a thing. Um, but remember, again, when we're reading the New Testament and reading the Gospels, this isn't a chemistry paper. It's funny how people get so tripped up on this. See, Jesus didn't know anything. He said this thing about salt becoming less salty. He's using the common speech of the first century to people who would understand what it was he was talking about. He's not talking about pure salt. What he's talking about is what they all knew as salt. So most of the salt in this area came from the Dead Sea. And they would get it out, and I don't know how that works. I don't know, what do you mine salt or something? Like a, I don't know. They would get salt. You can Google it later. Not that important to the sermon. And sometimes whatever salt they would get was often filled with all sorts of impurities. They would have like this old chunk of whatever, but it was actually hardly salt. And so what he's saying is, Everybody knew about this, and so sometimes what they thought was salt would kind of erode or corrode or whatever and become less salty because it, the actual salt content in this thing would, would disappear and they'd just be left with this gunk. And so everybody knew about this stuff, and uh, so Jesus uses that for the imagery. Now, what was the salt used for? It doesn't actually matter in Jesus' image here, um, but it was used for a couple of things, right? Salt was a preservative. It was used for seasoning. Um, it was really common in the first century Jewish world to put it around the edge of a margarita glass. Just kidding. <laughs> um, for, for this image, the use of it is not important. The, the purity and the saltiness of it is what's important, right? If, if salt isn't salty, it's useless. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the, the meaning then is, I, I don't need fans, right? If you're a fan of Jesus, you're useless, right? If you're impure, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you're not if, you're not, if you haven't given yourself to him completely, it's useless. There's no good. It's pointless. And in verse 35, he finishes. Uh, that's what he says here. It is of no use. Yeah, sorry. It is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. So what happens when the, the gunky, nasty, fake salt, it doesn't work? They just throw it away. They throw it in the garbage. Where, by the way, I always put my batteries and used car oil. So good job. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, that's, that's the text. Let's give us four takeaways from this text. The first one goes like this. Discipleship is total. It's costly. That is the main point of the passage that Jesus wants us to see. So the question for us, maybe, let's ask this question. What does, what has following Jesus really cost you? Right? If if you can't think of anything, maybe you're sort of sitting in that fan zone where, you know, I, I admire Jesus until it's going to cost me something, right? Right, and then maybe ask this question. What, can you think of a time specifically where following Jesus should have costed you something and you chickened out and avoided that pain or that cost or whatever it was, right? That's, that's fan following Jesus. That's not the kind of disciples we want to be. The second one is... Discipleship is free, but it costs everything. Yeah, think about that for five No, Right, so being a disciple of Jesus means that we sit in this tension. At the foundation of what we believe, Christianity is about grace, the death of Jesus, right? This is a, it's a free gift. I'm reading a book right now, like it's like an academic theological book, where he's talking all about the idea of grace uh, as like a... 
as a gift in, in the, what that meant to the people of this first century culture. It's pretty interesting, right? It's, it, this is what it is. But when you receive that gift, it also transforms you into a new person who is so devoted to Christ that you're willing to live a completely different lifestyle. And so what we want to do is avoid both errors. Don't think that just because disciple is, discipleship is costly that it means I'm earning my salvation, right? Okay, if Jesus asks for all this stuff from me, that's how I'm going to be saved. As long as I'm doing all this stuff, then I'm going to be saved. We don't want the other error, which means, well, it's free, so I don't have to do anything, right? What we want to do is sit in that tension. This, following Jesus in our redemption is absolutely free and absolutely a gift of God, but that gift comes with a new life and a new way of living, right? And that's one of the ways we know we have accepted that gift as we start to look at our lives as this process where we're changed into these disciples giving our whole selves to Jesus. And so what we want to do then is count the cost, right? We should count the cost. We need to be real about what it costs to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, It doesn't do anybody any favors to pretend like Christianity is easy and an automatic path to prospering um, according to the values of this world, right? We don't want to be those kind of believers. When you count the cost, when you look at what Jesus says here, discipleship is hard. And so before you really get into this, you need to count the cost. When we do that and we see, boy, the cost sure can be high. This is tough to be a Christian in a world, in the world that we live in. What, what, what's our motivation to keep going? to keep pushing on, right? And this is, this is the motivation, is we understand that when Jesus asks us to count the cost, he's not asking us to do anything he didn't do. See, he did the same thing. He counted the cost. Redemption was very costly for Jesus, right? The part that's free for us was really expensive for him. It's like the thing, you know, you hear in politics all the time or whatever, like nothing's ever free. Oh, I want free, like, I don't know, parking or I don't know whatever it is, but like somebody pays for everything, right? This is how it works. When we talk about the gift of God in redemption was free, yeah, it's free to us. It was very costly to Jesus. And so Jesus looked at this in eternity past. He looked at how costly this would all be and the, facing the wrath of God, facing the humiliation of going from the throne to the manger. He looked at all of that cost, and then he looked at you, and he said, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. And understanding that is our motivation for continuing in discipleship when it's hard. When Jesus asks something hard from you, you have to understand Nothing he's asking you to do is going to be harder than what he did for you already. And the more that you focus on what it is that he did for you, the more that you're going to, oh yeah, of course, this is the guy I want to give my entire life to. This is the guy I want to follow totally because he did this for me. The beauty of the cross builds that into us. And then the last idea is once that happens, the more that you focus on that and the more that you're transformed by the Holy Spirit and transformed by his grace, all of a sudden, you're salty, right? Salt, salt, I mean, one of the things with saltiness or, you know, the uses of salt is it sticks out. You got a bland dish, throw some salt on it. Oh, hey, it's pretty good, right? This is how we're supposed to be in the world. 
is we're supposed to be these people who don't live with the same worldview paradigm that everybody around us is living with. We look different because of what we believe and who we follow. And so we live in the world with humility, willing to live a costly life, bathed in grace, all of those things. It, it, it helps us stick out uh, in the world. Amen?